Hello and welcome to another podcast brought to you by Airs LA. My name is Nancy Porter and it's my pleasure to present articles from the July 24th, 2023 issue of Time magazine. I must remind you that you are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or du duplication is permitted. We're going to start with the Time Magazine section called The Brief. Headline, Hunter Biden Headache. House Republicans plan to ramp up their investigation into the president's son after his whistleblower testimony by Eric Cortelesa. After the Justice Department announced on June 20th that Hunter Biden had reached a plea deal on misdemeanor tax charges, Republicans in Congress made clear they were not done with the president's son. The emergence of an internal revenue services whistleblower alleging that the younger Biden received special treatment from federal prosecutors lit a fire under House Republicans, who accelerated an investigation that could stretch well into 2024. According to sources familiar with the matter, House GOP leadership intends to wait for Hunter Biden's July arraignment before moving ahead with a multi-pronged investigatory effort spearheaded by three committees, Judiciary, Oversight, and Ways and Means. The panels are pursuing a thorough investigation into this misconduct to deliver the transparency and accountability that the American people demand and deserve. Their chairs, Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio, James Comer of Kentucky, and Jason Smith of Missouri, said in a statement, The new phase of the inquiry stems from testimony provided to the Ways and Means Committee by Gary Shapley, an IRS official who supervised the agency's roles in the Department of Justice's investigation. Asserting whistleblower protections, he claimed that Attorney General Merrick Garland prevented the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney overseeing the probe from bringing more charges against Joe Biden's son. Both Garland and the prosecutor, David Weiss, have strenuously denied the allegations, and the Department of Justice said when announcing the agreement, without elaboration, that the investigation is ongoing. Sources say that House Republicans are likely to call Weiss, to testify on the matter in the coming months. Shapley, a 14-year IRS employee, also told lawmakers the Justice Department denied requests from prosecutors to examine text messages in which Hunter Biden allegedly used his father as leverage to pressure a Chinese company to pay him. I am sitting here with my father and we would like to understand why the commitment made has not been fulfilled. Hunter Biden texted the CEO of a Chinese fund management company in 2017, according to testimony from Shapley. Joe Biden has told reporters he was not with his son during that exchange six years ago. Since assuming a slim majority in January, House Republicans have put investigating malfeasance related to Hunter Biden at the top of their agenda, but have so far failed to deliver anything that incriminates the president. 
At the very least, this latest turn in the investigation allows them to hunt for evidence to determine whether Garland's or Shapley's account is true. This is just typical presidential year political theater and not serious oversight work, says a former Democratic Congressional Investigative Council, who requested anonymity because they still work with the government. The more media attention that a whistleblower seeks, in my experience, the less credible they're typically, they have typically been. It's an argument shared by other Capitol veterans, including Ronald Welch, former Assistant Attorney General for Legislative Affairs and Chief Counsel to former Senators Harry Reid and Ted Kennedy. Running to Congress should not be the first avenue for a whistleblower, says Welch, now the Dean of the University of Baltimore Law School, emphasizing that Shapley could have turned to the Inspector General of either the Treasury or Justice Department, and Congress should not be interfering in ongoing criminal investigations or prosecutions. I think the fact that he went to Congress suggests that this has more of a political motive. Another former high-level government official also expressed skepticism over the complaints. Whistleblowers frequently have agenda that explain their coming forward. Sometimes the agendas are personal. In this day and age, they are increasingly political, says Michael Bromwich, a former federal prosecutor and Department of Justice Inspector General during the Clinton administration. Whistleblowers should not be dismissed out of hand, but their allegations also shouldn't be treated as the gospel truth until they are fully vetted and tested. House Republicans have been citing Shapley's testimony as grounds to pursue impeachment proceedings against Garland, an idea promoted by the likes of right-wing firebrands Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia and Lauren Boebert of Colorado. On June 25th, Speaker Kevin McCarthy signaled a willingness to consider it. He tweeted that if the whistleblower's allegations are true, this will be a significant part of a larger impeachment inquiry into Merrick Garland's weaponization of the Department of Justice. Democrats expect the forthcoming proceedings to amount to more of a stunt than a serious investigation into alleged wrongdoing. Merrick Garland has a pretty long track record, says the former congressional counsel. I find it pretty implausible that he would stake his career on trying to protect Hunter Biden. We move now on to a section called The Bulletin. Headline, What Extreme Heat Means for Hajj Pilgrims. Some 1.8 million Muslims descended on Mecca, Saudi Arabia, from June 26th to July 1st to perform Hajj. Compared with caps of 10,000 pilgrims in 2020, 60,000 in 2021, and 1 million in 2022, it was the biggest Hajj in years after Saudi officials established their strict COVID-19 travel limits. But with the influx of pilgrims, the kingdom billed this year's Hajj as the largest in history, came a reminder of a long-standing health concern that has loomed over it. Extreme heat. Too hot to handle. 
At least 8,400 pilgrims were treated for heat stroke or exhaustion, with temperatures regularly topping 111 degrees Fahrenheit throughout the week. The Islamic holiday follows the lunar calendar, meaning that the timing of Hajj changes each year, but it will continue to fall in Saudi Arabia's hottest months until 2026. Pilgrims at the Grand Mosque were sprayed with water by automatic cooling systems, and free bottles of water and umbrellas were distributed. More than 32,000 health workers, as well as thousands of ambulances, were on standby to treat cases of heat stroke, dehydration, and exhaustion. The government of Saudi Arabia, for all their flaws, takes their duty as hosts very seriously, says Yara Asi, an assistant professor at the University of Central Florida's School of Global Health Management and Informatics. This is supposed to be a holy time, a gathering of global Muslims, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. They want it to go well. Extreme heat is not automatically attributable to climate change because it's a desert, says Josh Leliaveld, a professor at the Max Planck Institute for the Advancement of Science. But Leliaveld says studies showing the Gulf is getting hotter. For example, according to Yale Climate Connections, wet bulb temperatures, which means a combination of dry air and humidity that makes it hard for bodies to cool down, are about 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit have on average higher in Mecca than they were three decades ago. The worry for pilgrims and Saudi officials alike is that rising temperatures will get in the way of one of the five pillars of Islam, and only more so over time. At some point, Asi warns, we may see a decrease in the vulnerable populations traveling to Hod. All right, we move on to the news section of the brief. Headline, good question. What's behind the homelessness crisis? By Belinda Luscombe and Elijah Wolfson. People don't usually become homeless suddenly. It's a shoots and ladders process with lots of shoots and hardly any ladders. A large new statewide study done by the University of California, San Francisco's Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative, takes a closer look at the period just before homelessness by asking a representative sample of almost 3,200 homeless people from all over the state of California about the chutes they fell into and what could or would have helped. Mark and Lynn Benioff funders of the USSF initiative, are also co-chairs and owners of Time magazine. The study, published on June 20th, is the largest of its kind since the 1990s. Some of the findings were unsurprising. In the state with the largest homeless population, people are unhoused because they don't have enough money or have endured trauma. A quarter of all survey participants had experienced sexual violence, and their lives and health and safety get much worse 
once homelessness strikes. But some of the report's data run counter to popular perception. For example, most homeless people were not from out of state, contrary to the myth that homeless people moved to California for the weather and its policies. The median length of homelessness at the time of the survey was nearly two years. The study's leader, author, Dr. Margot Kuschel, a professor of medicine at UCSF, says there is a doom loop of homelessness where people have jobs that don't cover living expenses, so they lose their homes. And the resulting instability makes it harder to keep their jobs. She points to really exciting models of homelessness prevention, where in lower income communities, they'll have subway and bus posters saying, are you at risk of becoming homeless? Call us. These programs might offer anything from infusions of cash to mediation services with landlords or roommates. What was really striking to us, how little money people thought it would have taken, says Kushel. Most participants suggested that less than $500 a month or a one-time payment of $10,000 would have kept them housed. The prevalence of mental illness and substance abuse among those experiencing homelessness is clear. But Kushel cautions that the vast majority of mental health issues among the study participants are anxiety and depression. It's likely the lack of resources exacerbates those conditions rather than the illness causing the homelessness, she says. The driving issue is clearly the deep poverty, Kushel says. And here are some charts that reveal the study's new findings about how people slide into homelessness. Here's one chart that shows that 64% of homeless people did not seek help before being evicted. And here's a chart that shows 82% of California homeless population that reported having ever suffered from a mental health condition. 62% had been a heavy drinker, and 65% regularly used illicit drugs. And here's a chart showing the last place people in California lived before becoming homeless. 49% lived in a housing situation where they didn't have their name on a lease or a mortgage. That meant they were just renters. 32% came from a housing situation where they were renters. And 19% came from an institution such as a prison or a prolonged jail cell. Moving on to the section called The View. What the court can't do. This is about the Supreme Court. While a legal blow, the Supreme Court's decision on affirmative action should not and need not be the final word. Our legal and democratic responsibility to address the racial and ethnic inequalities that persist in the U.S. education system is just as important as ever. Because what the court does not have the power to do is erase our civil rights laws or the principles underlying them. 
The U.S. Supreme Court just limited the ability of universities to consider an applicant's race and ethnicity in admissions. In its opinion, the court found that Harvard and the University of North Carolina's consideration of race and ethnicity in determining admission violated both the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. While Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion exhibits concern with the pernicious effects of race-conscious affirmative action programs to promote diversity, it ignores the core problem of unjust distribution of educational opportunity and access on the basis of race, ethnicity, and class. Black, Latino, and Vietnamese and Filipino American communities are among those who remain most unrepresented in higher education, including at selective flagship state institutions in states where they pay taxes. At highly selective public colleges and universities, merit scholarships and out-of-state recruitment practices and legacy preferences all work to disadvantage underrepresented students of color in admissions as well as low-income students. Given these inequities, schools and universities still have a legal duty and the opportunity to address them. The same legal statutes and constitutional authority that the Supreme Court majority just invoked to limit race-conscious affirmative action also require that educational institutions address underrepresentation within education. The 14th Amendment, drafted by abolitionists inside and outside Congress, aims to grant full citizenship to formerly enslaved people and promote the elimination of racial caste in American democracy. In fact, the court's unanimous 1954 decision in Brown versus the Board of Education read the 14th Amendment to forbid state-sponsored segregation in education, recognizing that access to education was necessary for full citizenship for black children. Regardless of the court's recent ruling, Brown creates a duty to advance substantive equality in education and in society. For that reason, the persistence of education inequities is inconsistent with Brown's principles. Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the statute at the issue in the Supreme Court's decision, would soon follow Brown. It forbids discrimination on the basis of race and ethnicity by all entities that take federal funds. This includes public institutions like UNC, as well as private institutions like Harvard. Title VI was enacted to implement Brown's equality and citizenship vision by allowing the federal government to terminate funds to institutions that were not meaningfully integrated. The Civil Rights Act goes on to make clear that educational institutions have an affirmative duty to create opportunity. One of the early cases enforcing Title VI in 1974 held that San Francisco school officials had to take affirmative action to provide meaningful access to and funding for bilingual education services for Chinese American students. This case instantiates the core principle that simply refraining from discriminating or offering the same services to all children is not enough 
to ensure that students receive a substantively equal education. A similar duty of affirmative inclusion underlies provisions for students with disabilities and Title IX, which are modeled on Title VI. To advance inclusion is still required by our nation's laws. Universities will need to examine how their admissions programs and practices continue to disadvantage underrepresented students of color. But this democratic imperative is not just limited to admissions. It's crucial that educational institutions create pathways and partnerships that reach underserved students and less resourced schools. This will mean developing programs in elementary and secondary schools, partnerships with community colleges, and transfer policies that enable access to more resourced and selective institutions. Indeed, improving educational access and opportunity is a project for us all. All of us can pay attention to who has access to the colleges and schools that we or our children attend, and who does not. The court's opinion cannot stop well-meaning individuals and institutions from caring about racial and ethnic inequality in this country. The Supreme Court has spoken on race-conscious affirmative action for now, but it's not the end of the conversation. Headline in the World section, Vladimir Putin's Uncertain Future. When Vladimir Putin delivered a speech just days after surviving the greatest challenge to his 23 years in power, he sought to strike a defiant tone. The Russian president described the armed convoy of thousands of Russian soldiers led by Wagner Group chief Yevgeny Prigozhin as a mutiny designed to foment domestic turmoil and its organizers as plotters who betrayed their country. Yet, in that June 26th speech, Putin did not reveal plans for punishment or retribution. He said that Prigozhin and his men would be free to go into exile in Belarus, Russia's vassal state next door. This is not the traditional Putin playbook, according to Bill Browder, who would know better than most. The London-based financier has spent more than a decade exposing corruption and human rights abuses in Russia. Browder has personally faced the ire of the Kremlin, which declared him a threat to Russian national security in, 20, in 2005, and he has seen his friends and colleagues jailed and even killed for their activism. One such friend, the prominent journalist and Putin critic Vladimir Karamozer, was sentenced in April to 25 years on charges of treason. Speaking to Time magazine by phone the day after Putin's address to his country, Browder discussed the aftermath of the failed Wagner rebellion and the future of the man who has led Russia longer than anyone else since, Joseph Stalin. Prigozhin was able to get within 124 miles of Moscow before his forces turned around. Is Putin the omnipotent autocrat observers believed he was? Putin has tried to create this image of a strongman in total control, and there's really been no way to test that from outside of Russia, because opinion polls are completely meaningless. And then, 
all of a sudden, on June 24th, we see a relatively small group of armed marauders cross into Russian territory totally unopposed, go into Rostov-on-Don, and take control of one of the most important military bases in the country. That just shows that the image that Putin has been trying to project is a complete fraud. As Prigozhin made his way toward Voronezh, the same thing happened there. And then he got on to the highway to Moscow. The only reason why he didn't complete his journey was that 8,000 men cannot take over a country of 141 million people unless they have co-conspirators. And I believe that he probably thought he did, and it was probably prearranged, and those people got cold feet when the situation escalated to that point. This is a monumental challenge to Putin. Unless he's able to reassert the impression that he is this ruthless strongman, he will lose his power and lose his life. Putin let Prigozhin go, despite having done far worse to critics who have done far less. Why do you think that is? Putin jailed Vladimir Karamurza for 25 years for giving a few speeches about rights abuses. To have an actual rebellious traitor and to let him off is completely out of character. Why would Putin be so lenient? Well, there are two reasons. One is that Prigozhin is the most capable fighter in all of Russia. He is a killer. He is ruthless. And he has every capacity to cause unheard of hardships for Putin and the people around him. Putin should be just as afraid of Prigozhin as Prigozhin should be of Putin. The second reason is that Prigozhin continues to be a key man in Russia. Russia is so full of incompetency that the one person who emerged who was competent at military operations was Yevgeny Prigozhin. He was the one person that the Ukrainians respected on the battlefield. And he runs 17 other military operations in Africa. And so Prigozhin is both too ruthless to arrest and also too important to the overall foreign policy of Russia. How has the rebellion undermined Putin's image within Russia? His image has been totally destroyed. Russia is like a prison yard. Putin was able to establish himself as the chief criminal in the prison yard by being so ruthless at the very beginning of his presidency. And that ruthlessness and that brutality allowed him to stay in power in a country in which it's very difficult to do that. The fact that he was rumored to have gotten on his plane and fled Moscow, the fact that Prigozhin was unopposed, the fact that he led Prigozhin off the hook afterwards, it makes Putin look like a truly weak leader in a country where weakness is despised. There is no way that this won't invite more challenges now because Putin's strength is diminished. With all that in mind, what do you think the future holds for Putin? 
the door has now been opened for anyone to challenge Putin. If somebody can step into his shoes at some point, the riches are beyond imagination. So there's a huge incentive for people to do that. Putin still has an opportunity to redeem himself, but in doing so, he's going to have to embark on an almighty purge that we haven't seen since Stalin's time. And I think that's what he's going to do. But whether he succeeds is another question. And finally, Prigozhin went to Belarus under the terms of the deal that prompted him to turn his march on Moscow around. Will he be safe there? Everyone is talking about Prigozhin needing to worry. I think Putin probably needs to worry more about Prigozhin than vice versa. Prigozhin is a trained, cold-blooded killer. Putin is a guy who hides in his bunker. And that was an interview by Razmin Sherman. All right, moving on in the July 24th issue of Time Magazine. We move on to an article called American Original. Megan Rapino redefined women's sports. Now she's aiming for a three-peat in her final World Cup. And this is by Sean Gregory. Megan Rapino thrives on noise. Most athletes strive to be in the zone. That state of quiet mental focus enabling players to block out the cheers and jeers of stadium crowds, allowing performance to peak. Rapino, however, takes all in the chatter. I'm hearing the crowds. I'm hearing the fans, she says. The two-time defending World Cup champion forward for the U.S. is reclining on a restaurant couch in Seattle, where she plays for the OL reign of the National Women's Soccer League. Wearing rhinestone-studded jeans and a tricolored shirt, white, red, and black, with a flower pattern running down the sleeves. Every time I go over for a corner kick, says Rapino, I am always like, hey, what's going on here? Rapino's embrace of commotion has defined her career. She's one of the most talked-about American athletes of our time. A five-foot-seven-inch whirling dervish of resistance, who, depending on whom you ask, is either an unapologetic symbol of an on-field excellence and off-field progress, or a disrespectful heel. Or, if mis misogyny or homophobia is your bag, even worse. More than a decade ago, she came out as gay, giving many other female sports figures permission to be more open about their sexuality. She has since worked tirelessly as an advocate for the LGBTQ community. She's the brightest athletic star currently leading a fight against the proliferation of U.S. state laws that ban transgender youth from playing on tennis teams consistent with their gender identity. Rapino has also knelt in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick and led a protracted but ultimately successful battle against her own soccer federation to ensure equal pay for female players. After Donald Trump criticized her during the 2019 World Cup, she scored against France and struck a now iconic pose that reminded the then president and her vociferous critics that she is going absolutely nowhere. Last year, Joe Biden awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom, 
the country's highest civilian honor. She is the first soccer player to be so recognized. Rapino is entering her fourth and final World Cup, which kicks off July 20th in the dual host nations of Australia and New Zealand and promises to be the best attended and most viewed women's sporting event in history. She will likely play a more muted on-field role as a reserve and veteran mentor for younger players on the U.S. team, which is seeking to make history as the first squad, women's or men's, to win three consecutive World Cup titles. Injuries to several prominent U.S. players, however, could call Rapineau, who turned 38 in early July, into action. A repeat of her brilliant 2019 performance is unlikely, but no longer impossible. No matter how Rapineau fares at the tournament, she secured her place as one of the world's most influential athletes. Her creative and joyful play helped elevate women's soccer to the status of appointment viewing. Female players around the world have followed the example of Rapino and her teammates and waged pay fights against their federations. She created a blueprint for female athletes. Tap into your truest self and demand what's yours. Lay waste to the notion of just being agreeable. In that past, a lot of female athletes in our generation for sure were told to sit down, to be quiet, to be grateful, says former U.S. soccer player Julie Foudy, one of the stars of the 1999 World Cup winning national team, whose victory helped bring women's sports into the consciousness of many fans. What Rapino has brought to the equation is the idea of we're going to have to bodily disrupt. History has shown that women like her lead people over that line. She hasn't given a rat's ass what people think. This is who she is and what she does, and there is freedom to that. And let's move on now to an article titled Campfire Stories. At bereavement camps, kids affected by suicide can heal together. And this was written by Jamie Ducharme and Cara Milstein. One by one, children toss note cards into the flames, each one bearing the name of a family member lost to suicide. Fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. Each card makes the fire burn a little brighter, a burst of light and memory as the paper singes and crumples. When each child has had their turn, they embrace in a group hug, some crying, some smiling, together in both their grief and healing. Tomorrow, the 72 children, teens, and young adults attending Comfort Zone Camp's three-day suicide bereavement camp in rural New Jersey, as well as the parents who accompanied them and the big buddies with whom the kids are paired, will pack up and return home. The hope is they will leave feeling emotionally lighter than when they arrived, says Lynn Hughes, who founded the camp more than 20 years ago, to give grieving children a place to open up and heal from their losses. If you never tell your story, grief doesn't go anywhere. It just hangs out on your shoulder with you, Hughes says. If you tell your story, 
it depowers it. In recent years, the need for suicide-specific support, particularly for children, has grown, and suicide bereavement camps are filling the void. Hughes started offering a suicide law-specific version of her camp in 2015, and in the past year, attendance rose by about 50%. Another, called Camp Kita in Maine, hosted five campers in its first season 10 years ago. This year, it had to cap enrollment at 75 and even limit the wait list. Demand is so high that the founders are raising money to construct permanent campgrounds. This growing demand coincides with rising U.S. suicide rates, which increased by about 37% from 2000 to 2021. Almost 50,000 people in the United States died by suicide in 2021, leaving behind a devastating multiple of grieving loved ones, many of them children. Judy's House, a bereavement support organization, estimates that more than 450,000 U.S. children will lose a parent to suicide by the time they turn 18. Short sleepaway camps have emerged as a unique way to support children and families grieving these losses. Out in the woods, campers can tell their stories, bond with people who understand their pain, and feel like kids again through activities like boating, crafts, archery, and roasting marshmallows. You make lifelong friendships at camp because you meet somebody that doesn't exactly know what you're going through but they have been through it in a different way, says Tess Wenger, age 15, who started attending Comfort Zone Camp after her then 11-year-old sister died by suicide. You feel as though you can talk to somebody about it, and you won't feel judged like in the normal outside world. Some people who balk at traditional talk therapy find it easier to open up during activities like nature walks, yoga classes, and bonfires, particularly around people who intimately understand what they're going through, says Caitlin Dages, Volunteer Executive Director at the Livin' Foundation, which established a suicide bereavement camp in Minnesota in 2019. Because the camps tend to be free, they may also be more accessible than traditional mental health care. Dages, whose father died by suicide when she was 12, says rising demand for these services underscores their dual purposes, to serve families who are already part of the unfortunate club of suicide bereavement and to prevent others from joining it. Camp is both reactive and preventive at the same time, she says. We're trying to support these families and the people left behind so they don't get to the same place. Research shows that people are at greater risk of suicidal behavior after someone they know dies by suicide. That includes children who lose a parent to suicide, who are also susceptible to developing psychiatric disorders. Although four more adults than children die by suicide, Rates of mental distress and suicidal thinking are on the rise among young people. As of 2021, 
42% of high school students say they felt sad or hopeless. 22% had considered suicide and 10% had attempted suicide, federal data show. Given those alarming statistics, it's particularly important to support young people who may be at increased risk of self-harm or suicide, such as those who have experienced the death of a parent, sibling, or friend. Theirs is a type of grief with unique nuances, Hughes says, and plenty of social stigma surrounding it. Suicide is often shrouded in silence, but not at camp. To mark the start of each healing circle at Comfort Zone, camp. Kids exchange pins and say what they appreciate and respect about one another. Then they volunteer to tell their stories. Whoever is holding the stress ball has the floor. Some campers speak eloquently. It's clear they have spoken about their experience before, while others stammer as they describe difficult details aloud for the first time. Their peers listen quietly, then ask questions about their grief journey and the person who died. Who were they as a person? What's your favorite memory with them? What brings you comfort when you're feeling sad? The answers aren't just healing for the speaker. Sharing these lived experiences exposes everyone in the circle to new coping mechanisms. You can talk about without any fears in this healing circle, says 16-year-old Malachi Chasse, who has attended Comfort Zone Camp three times to help cope with his father's death by suicide and his baby brother's accidental death. You can share. Everyone is going to understand. Even outside healing circles during activities that are ostensibly just for fun, there is an undercurrent of community and healing. As campers clamor through an obstacle course, Hughes asks how the experience is like grief. Well, some sections take longer than others, replies one camper. Well, you get down, said another, and then you get back up. So if you or someone you know may be experiencing a mental health crisis or contemplating suicide, call or text 988. In emergencies, call 911 or seek care from a local hospital or mental health provider. And we will stop there with our coverage of Time Magazine's uh, July 24th, 2023 edition. I need again to remind you that you have been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on air as LA are the copyright property of the original authorities, authors, and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share Time Magazine with you.